Digital interventions are programs, treatments, and resources delivered through online and mobile technologies to address behavior change and improve mental and physical health. With the advent of the internet, smartphones, and mobile apps, more people can access treatment than ever before. In episode 23 back in March, we talked about an online single-session intervention for self-harm, which is just one of many digital interventions. Today, we take a look at a variety of digital interventions specifically for non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short. For example, what digital interventions for NSSI exist? Do peer support apps like TalkLife help those who self-injure to decrease their engagement in the behavior or reduce their urges? And what do individuals who self-injure look for in app-based technologies for addressing self-injury? What role might virtual reality play as a component of treatment? To answer these questions and to discuss what research reveals about the effectiveness of these digital interventions for self-injury, I am joined today from Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago by Dr. Kaylee Cruzan. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISSS. Dr. Kaylee Cruzan is a research assistant professor in preventive medicine in the Center for Behavioral Intervention Technologies at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Cruzan's research focuses on the design, evaluation, and implementation of scalable digital mental health interventions for adolescents and young adults. She employs user-centered design methodologies to partner with young people, understand their mental health needs, and create digital resources primarily for young people not yet engaged in formal treatment. It's great to have you on the podcast, Dr. Cruzan. Thanks so much for having me. To begin things, how did you first become interested in researching non-suicidal self-injury and researching self-injury in digital interventions specifically? Yeah, so my introduction to self-injury was through my PhD mentor and advisor, Dr. Janice Whitlock. So I did my PhD in the Department of Communication at Cornell. And for listeners who aren't familiar with the field of communication, my training was focused on computer-mediated communication. So basically understanding how mediated environments like social media or online communities affect the way people communicate and relate to one another. So I was really focused on understanding how people communicate about and seek support for mental health online. And although mental health was central to my research interests, there wasn't a big emphasis on mental health in my actual program. So I connected with Dr. Whitlock and we began working on some projects together through her lab. And as soon as I began learning about self-injury, I was hooked. I was really drawn to the functional nature of the behavior, I think, since it resonated with my own history of disordered eating. And I also enjoyed learning about people's recovery experiences and the mechanisms that facilitated their recovery. So yeah, in short, I took a deep dive in the literature and grew really interested in not only understanding the behavior, but also understanding ways to facilitate recovery through formal and informal interventions. It's nice to see things come full circle with the podcast where you worked with Dr. Janice Whitlock, who we interviewed, I think it was in episode three toward the very beginning of the podcast. So hers is a very popular episode about parenting youth who Mm self-injure. 
Before we jump into specific digital interventions and related research, I'd like to talk about a paper you published last year on the relationship between the use of a mobile peer support app in self-injury, and I'll include a link to your paper in the episode notes. You looked at the peer support app called Talk Life, and while we can't endorse it here, we can talk about what you found in terms of using apps like these in finding support for self-injury. So feeling seen and heard, we know it can be really important for those who self-injure, but do peer support apps like these work? Do they reduce self-injury thoughts and behaviors? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I don't think that there's a very clear answer. So for listeners who aren't familiar with TalkLife, it's a peer support app, and much like other popular social media platforms, it's a space where people can post and comment on their peers, post and comments, and connect with others who share interests. And then the real focus here is on mental health. So what we know is that online communities, including social media, are associated with many benefits and harms. In broad strokes, the benefits people can derive from connecting with peers online are feelings of validation, understanding that they're not alone and that other people have similar experiences, social support, and increased self-understanding through being able to reflect on sort of their own experiences relative to others. And then some of the harms are exposure or potential exposure to triggering content or graphic content, of course, cyberbullying, and um, normalization of self-injury, where, you know, when you're in a community of folks who are talking about self-injury, it can seem like it's more common or sort of more widespread than it really is. And we discuss this in a chapter on self-injury and social media in the new handbook on adolescent digital media use and mental health which is completely free. So I want to put a a plug on that and it's available online if anyone wants to look more deeply into that sort of connection between online communities and self-injury specifically. But what I wanted to say is that what we know about these harms and benefits is mostly through firsthand experiences of folks. So through like interviews and also through static content. So what's been published in these online communities. And we just don't have that much research linking the use of a site like Talk Life to specific self-injury outcomes. And so the paper that you mentioned was an initial attempt in a series of projects to do that. So basically, over the course of four months, we partnered with TalkLife and collected data on 268 participants who were using the platform. And we also sent them surveys weekly to ask them about their self-injury behaviors and thoughts. So we had three types of data, the responses to these surveys, their behavior and activity on the platform, and then language use. So what they had talked about in posts and comments. And so before I mention the findings, I just want to put a caveat out there that this isn't predictive or causal. And the reason for this is that we are only able to see how the responses to the surveys are related to this type of activity within a week's time. So it might be that somebody posted something on TalkLife, but that happened after they answered the survey, or it could be vice versa, if that makes sense. But what we found is that activity level predicted or was associated with decreased thoughts and intent to self-injure. So that is participants who engaged actively on talk life through posting content, liking, and generally interacting with others were at lower odds of reporting self-injury thoughts and intentions within a week's time. Activity level didn't predict self-injury behavior 
or um, an individual's ability to resist self-injury urges, which was another sort of outcome we looked at. And then what was, I think, most interesting is that we found certain use patterns were uniquely associated with risk. So here we looked at posts that were flagged as potentially triggering. And so on TalkLife, you can actually, as a user, if you're posting something that might be a little bit graphic or include some language that could be triggering to someone, you can mark it as triggering so that you can give people sort of a a heads up that this might be something that they want to stay away from if they're really struggling. And we also looked at times when people chose to look at that triggering content. So they saw that there was a trigger warning and they sort of like canceled it so that they could see the content. And we found that posting triggering content was associated with an increased likelihood of engaging in self-injury behaviors and having self-injury thoughts in a week's time. And we also found that viewing triggering content was related to a greater ability to resist self-injury and a greater intention to self-injure. So that's pretty contradictory when you look at it sort of at a surface level. And how we describe it in the paper is that it may be that participants with a strong intention to self-injure dismiss the trigger warnings to view the triggering content and sort of dissuade themselves from engaging in the behavior, which is something that we have seen in in the literature. And in doing so, they may feel more capable of resisting self-injury. Of course, that's totally speculative, though. Did you collect data at all, or were you able to see how many people were exposed to a trigger warning, an image that said trigger warning, and then dismissed it versus went on to another page or post? Yeah, that's a really good question. We don't have that data, like whether they decided to look at it or not. So whether it was just viewed versus, you know, canceled and and viewing the content, but that would be really interesting. We do know that a fair amount of people came into contact with those posts. And that is, I can't remember if that's from this specific study or from the RCT that we did later, but I do know that it's quite common for people to come into contact with the trigger warnings on that site. I ask because I know other research that has looked at trigger warnings when, say, in college, being informed at the beginning of a lecture or presentation that what they could be discussed or what they may view could be triggering. And nearly 100% of people, not everyone, but very few people actually decide not to look at the content. They typically will Mm -hmm. go ahead and view the content anyway, even when they know it could be related to their own mental health or psychological difficulties, such as trauma. That's why I was Mm -hmm. asking in this case if we know what differentiates those who decide to access the content anyway when they see the trigger warning versus those who see the trigger warning and move on without looking at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think it's human nature to look at that content. Once you see a trigger warning, it becomes kind of like, oh, I wonder what's there. And I do think that's an under-researched sort of area. And I know, especially in you know, thinking about social media and self-injury and, you know, many of the social media sites have created some form of a trigger warning where you're able to sort of conceal content that might be, that might not be the best for all of the users on the site. And I don't know as though we have a lot of good research on, you know, how many people do look at it, how many people avoid it and what the implications of that are for their mental health. I'd be really interested. I mean, obviously, this goes beyond our conversation, but I'm just thinking about some research related to trigger warnings, how overall, they don't tend to really be all that useful, because some may actually prime the individual to have a more sensitive or intense response than they would otherwise just accidentally Mm -hmm. coming upon it, because they're told this is triggering content. So then they may become emotionally primed to experience that as triggering when it might not otherwise be triggering. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you said that being active on the app, peer support, posting more was related to decreased thoughts and intentions to self-injure, but no relationship with the actual behavior? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So that's what we found in the study that I mentioned. What we found in an RCT, so we did a randomized control trial of talk life in following up on this this specific study because we couldn't get at causality in this piece. We did find that those folks who were in the talk life condition, so those who were using talk life, and here we had asked participants to engage with talk life three times per week. So post and comment three times per week, just because we found that that was sort of like a common activity level. And we wanted to make sure that they were, you know, using the platform so we could understand whether or not it was helping them. We found that those folks actually reported less self-injury over the course of an eight-week study than folks who were in the control condition, which was we sent participants psychoeducational materials on self-injury through their emails. So it was an active control. And so we do have some preliminary evidence that it might be related to decreased self-injury behavior. But I would also caveat that and say that in qualitative responses to the RCT, so when folks were actually reporting their experiences, you know, receiving the psychoeducational materials in the control condition or participating on the peer support platform throughout the course of the study, um, we saw a lot of positive reactions to the psychoeducational materials and sort of mixed reactions to the talk life experience generally. And I think that probably has to do with just how dynamic talk life is or any of these social media platforms in that, you know, we know there are harms and benefits. And so you might be exposed to some things that you don't want to be exposed to by the nature of being around other humans. And then you might also gain some benefits from it, you know, hearing about other people's experiences and being able to express yourself. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag there. That's really interesting with the mixed responses related to the actual app, but the positive responses to the psychoeducation, the materials that you sent through email, did they give reasons as to what was helpful about the material that you sent? Yeah. So the material that we sent, folks really liked understanding. So so I would say that the material that we gathered was from the Cornell Research Program on Self-Injury and Recovery, which is Janice Whitlock's program. And then also a couple of other sort of resources that are out there for self-injury, like Stephen Lewis's SIOS. I can't remember the Self-injury outreach and support. Yeah. So self-injury outreach and support. Folks really liked materials focused on different coping skills. So things that you can do in place of self-injury or to sort of mitigate self-injury urges, and then also understanding self-injury. So like, why might you engage in self-injury? What are some of the reasons for this? So like a functional understanding of self-injury and also the help-seeking materials. So materials that talked about like, how can you get help or how might you have this conversation with somebody that you love or that you trust? So those were the materials I think that were most sort of cited. That makes sense. I'm actually writing a paper now, a book chapter myself, and reviewing the literature, looking at a meta-analysis that looked at emotion dysregulation as a risk factor for non-suicidal self-injury. And obviously, we know that that's one of the functions self-injury serves is to regulate emotions. And I think using the difficulties in emotion regulation scale, limited access to emotion regulation strategies, so not having perceived ability to cope or have useful strategies to cope with difficult emotions was most 
strongly associated with self-injury when looking at all the different aspects of emotion dysregulation. So here, one of the most helpful aspects that you're sharing is strategies to cope with the emotions associated with self-injury instead of self-injuring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Coping strategies, especially around emotion regulation, but also interpersonal relationships too, I think. Yeah. You know, we get into conflict with other people and then understanding how we can sort of establish boundaries and whatnot. That's something that's also come out of some of my interviews, just really needing that second part, like both emotion regulation, but also like, how do we deal with, you know, emotions that come from the relationships that we're in and navigating that with another person? Exactly. You also just published a paper in which you asked young adults with lived experience of self-injury about what they look for in app-based technology for addressing self-injury. What did you learn from this study? Yeah, so we just wrapped up these interviews and the paper is now published. So I interviewed 20 young adults with lived experience of self-injury, and these folks weren't in any form of mental health treatment at the time of my interviews. So we were interested in understanding what resources would be helpful for people who may not be able to get into formal treatment or for any other reasons weren't involved in formal treatment, which is the majority of folks with you know lived experience of self-injury, I think. So in terms of findings, first, I would say that many of the young adults I talked to reported a lack of effective strategies like you were just describing and an interest in using technologies if these technologies could help them to better manage their urges to achieve their goals related to self-injury, which could be, you know, reducing the frequency or severity of injuries or increasing healthier coping strategies Participants also reported using technologies already as part of their sort of self-management of uh, mental health and self-injury. So, for example, some use technology to access distraction, right? So going onto Netflix in moments when they were feeling kind of elevated or, or having some difficult emotions and also using other apps for specific mental health purposes. So using different meditation apps or apps for their physical health. So tracking physical activity or sleep patterns, that type of thing. Another interesting finding was that almost all participants reported searching for self-injury information online and seeking help online through online communities. But I was interviewing young adults and what was, I guess, sort of surprising, although maybe it shouldn't have been surprising, is that This early help seeking online was really when folks were younger, so as adolescents. And it seems like with time, they sort of distanced themselves from those communities. So it seemed like initially it helped them to feel sort of like there were people who had similar experiences. It made them feel less alone. And sometimes it it exposed them to coping strategies that they tried and, and were effective for a period of time but that their needs sort of shifted as they became sort of young adults or maybe even, you know, advanced in sort of their self-injury recovery and, and they were looking for other things. And so some of the specific qualities that they were hoping to see in an app that might be able to support them is safe connection to social support. So not necessarily the type of support that you might receive through an online community that's sort of unmoderated, but sort of being exposed to other people's experiences in a way 
that they could sort of take what it is that other people have tried and use it and implement it in their own life. So it wasn't necessarily the validation so much as it was like being able to understand what skills or strategies they might be able to use for themselves. Another thing was they wanted to be able to track patterns for improved self-knowledge and personalized recommendations. So they wanted to almost like a chain analysis, right? Like understanding what typically happens before you feel an urge to self-injure or before self-injury behavior and what happens afterwards. And so again, coming back to that functional understanding of self-injury and sort of what is the behavior actually doing for them and how can they engage in activities or put some type of plan in place to make this less likely or to resolve these conditions before they they turn into a behavior. And then also they wanted to see the app incorporate varied support for mental health and self-injury specific needs. So many of the individuals that I spoke with saw self-injury as a coping strategy Some of them, as I was speaking with them, weren't so interested in addressing the self-injury through the app itself. They were more interested in addressing the symptoms that sort of led to these peaks in emotion dysregulation, and then for them would manifest in some type of self-injury thought or behavior. And so they really wanted that focus to be on mental health and sort of more holistic. And so that's something that you know, moving forward as we begin to develop, you know, apps and resources for this population, I think we need to be really careful about. That makes sense. Wanting to really tackle the core, Mm -hmm. the drivers of the self-injury rather than self-injury itself. And I like the focus on, I guess, the antecedents or the activating events, the triggers to self-injury. I'm reminded of actually episodes 10 and 11, where we interviewed Dr. Peggy Andover on the treatment for self-injurious behavior. And she talked all about the functional analysis. You've mentioned that a few times already today, where Mm -hmm. she'll walk people, and and I've used this in my clinical work, where we'll sit down and walk through, okay, what was going on that led up to this. And a lot of times people are not necessarily aware, which then reminds me of episode 11 with Dr. Glenn Keekins about ecological momentary assessment, where we can capture the data in that moment about what's going on and tracking that over time. And I think ecological momentary assessment research has shown that typically there is an increase in affect intensity or dysregulation all the way up to 15 hours prior to a self-injurious episode. So I think sometimes people subjectively experience self-injury as impulsive or just sudden. But if we look at the data, oftentimes there's an increase over the hours preceding it. And then it hits a threshold that seems to be at that point impulsive right then and there. But the signs were there early on. So these individuals with lived experience of self-injury are recognizing that and saying, hey, I would like to gain that self-awareness of what's going on for myself, what might lead me to self-injure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with different technologies, we have such an opportunity to be able to sort of provide reflection on that, reflection on the patterns, and also you know, personalized recommendations or things that can help folks in the moment. Because like you said, it isn't just the moment, it really is, you know, a a pattern can happen even a whole half day before we recognize that like, oh, we might be in sort of a, a risky situation here. And so using technology in a way that could help us to gain better self insight and deploy coping strategies and moments when they're needed is really exciting. 
Yeah, so you've talked about these app-based technologies for addressing self-injury from the study. What digital interventions for self-injury currently exist, and is there research supporting their use in decreasing self-injury thoughts and behaviors? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So there have been a couple of meta-analyses recently that looked at trials of digital interventions for self-harm mostly. And so self-harm, of course, includes non-suicidal self-injury and also suicidal self-injury in other forms. So of the trials or applications that were looked at in these meta-analyses, just four trials were focused on non-suicidal self-injury specifically. And these are studies that looked at NSSI as either a target or an outcome. There are two digital interventions based on psychotherapeutic principles from existing treatment. So like DBT Coach is a mobile app that helps people to practice skills from dialectical behavior therapy or DBT. And this app is specifically meant to be an adjunct to treatment. So this is for folks who are already in sort of DBT treatment and folks who have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And so this app includes content from four evidence-based DBT modules. So mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness. And it's intended to assist users in choosing and applying DBT skills in moments of distress. And so there have been several pilot trials of this app, and it's associated with reductions in urges to self-harm. NSSI frequency, and then subjective distress. So there's some evidence for that that specific app. And this is similar to another app called Blue Ice that was developed for self-harm, also as an adjunct to treatment. So for folks who are already engaged in some form of treatment, that's also shown that 73% of users reported having stopped or decreased self-injury over the course of 12 weeks of using that program. So the second sort of program focused on NSSI is Emotion Regulation Individual Therapy for Adolescents, or ERITA. Uh, This is a 12-week intervention, which is web-based, so it's not necessarily app-based, but it's web-based, and it's a manualized treatment for adolescents with NSSI. And so this includes, in addition to the web-based content, there's light touch support from a therapist, so reminders and check-ins a parent-facing psychoeducational program, and a complementary mobile app, which is intended to facilitate sort of daily reports of NSSI. So there's an an app involved as well. And then in an open trial, it was also associated with decreases in self-injury over six months. So that is to say that, you know, of the apps that are out there that are based on sort of principles from existing treatments, it looks like there's decent preliminary support for reductions in self-injury. But we don't have any like full-scale randomized control trials yet that have shown that they are very effective. And this is with sort of like an asterisk because I know that Arita is wrapping up or probably by the time this airs, we'll have uh, more information on the effectiveness of that intervention itself. There are also a couple of more experimental apps out there. So like Therapeutic Evaluative Conditioning, which is an app that was developed and is based on sort of aversive conditioning. It's sort of like a game-like app where you pair self-related words with self-injury or suicide-related words or images, and it's meant to decrease aversion to the self and increase aversion to self-injury thoughts and behaviors. 
And there's mixed results on this, the effectiveness of this app. So in one trial, there were good results for reductions in NSSI. These weren't sustained at follow-up. But in two other trials, there weren't these results. And then finally, there's an online daily diary intervention called autobiographical self-enhancement training. In this, you write about, you write for five minutes per day online about something that made you feel good about yourself. And the intention is to reduce self-criticism. And there were good results for this. However, it was in a three-arm RCT in each condition, which each condition included some form of online writing. There were reductions in NSSI. So we didn't see any differentiation across groups, but it did seem like writing was, was helpful in that context. So in sum, I'd say that existing research on digital interventions for NSSI is limited, but results thus far have shown promise. The trials provide preliminary evidence for the feasibility and acceptability of digital interventions. So folks seem to really like these types of interventions and interacting with them, particularly those that focus on skill building and those that include some form of human contact. And those, of course, that are informed by evidence-based treatments have been most effective. For listeners interested in using these digital interventions for their own self-injury, where might you direct them? Can they access these yeah. readily available? Yeah, so unfortunately, not not many of these are accessible to the public quite yet. And that's because, again, we're sort of in preliminary stages and we don't have like full efficacy trials. I do think there are, for listeners who are interested in potentially using a digital intervention, I would say that a great resource is One Mind Cyber Guide. And so this is a nonprofit that was developed by Stephen Schuler and colleagues at UC Irvine and Northwestern. And basically it's, it's a website. So you can go to this website and they evaluate mental health apps. So apps that are available to the public through app stores, but also through research. And they evaluate these apps on three metrics. So the credibility of the app, user experience, and um, transparency. So talking about privacy and safety and whether or not the app is doing sort of what it sets out to do. And so there aren't many apps for self-injury there, but I think if listeners are interested, sort of reflecting on, you know, what it is that they really want help with, whether that be developing coping strategies for emotion regulation, or maybe improving relationships or, you know, a number of different things. If you go to that website, you can easily sort of search apps that might fit those needs and at least have some evaluation that you can look at that's pretty rigorous. They give grades to them, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned RCTs or randomized controlled trials. So for those listeners that are interested in maybe participating in one of these RCTs or in research on self-injury in digital interventions, including the clinical trials, where might you direct them? Where could they access that to participate? Yeah, that's a good question. So many researchers working in this space advertise their studies on social media now. So I think that's one great way of finding studies is simply, you know, if you see these advertisements on social media, clicking into them, and you can usually find information about like sort of the eligibility and whether or not it would be something that you're interested in being involved in. The RCTs that are going on are usually published through clinicaltrials.gov. 
which is something. So you could go to that website and search, you know, self-injury or self-harm or something, some keywords and see if there are any trials that are going on that you'd be interested in participating in. I have a couple of studies that are going on that are advertised through Northwestern. So they're advertised through the Center for Behavioral Intervention Technologies at Northwestern and posted to the website there. So I think those are some of the places that you're sort of most likely to come into contact with trials that are on digital interventions for self-injury. About half our listeners live outside the U.S. A lot of these studies occur in the U.S. So for those listening outside the U.S., would they be able to participate in any, like in your research or in the one at clinicaltrials.gov? I'm not entirely sure on clinicaltrials.gov. I think that might be a national site. And so that would depend. I mean, you'd have to look at the eligibility requirements there. Certainly, there's a large contingent of folks who are doing research on self-harm and interested in sort of technology in the UK and the European Union. And so I'm sure there are resources that I'm not I'm not totally aware of that would be useful for those who are looking to participate in trials in other parts of the world. And then I would say, yes, for the work that we're doing, folks do not need to be located in the U.S. You've talked about using virtual reality as well to address self-injury. I know VR has been successfully used for certain mental health diagnoses like phobias, but practically speaking, how would you envision this VR virtual reality working for self-injury? Yeah, so virtual reality has been used in exposure therapy for phobias and PTSD for decades, like you said. And this is largely because of the technology's ability to create like highly realistic and controllable environments. And so it's been used mostly in the context of pretty intensive therapies where you have a therapist walking somebody through sort of some guided exposures in VR. My interest in the potential of VR for self-injury treatment is a little bit different and stems from sort of how it's been used successfully to target body regard, including perceptions of the body, body schema, and attitudes towards the body. And this has been mostly in the treatment of chronic and acute pain, as well as eating disorders. So there is a lot of really interesting research out on the use of VR for these specific conditions. And I think there's some overlap there that would make it particularly suitable for self-injury. For example, self-injury is commonly associated with poor body regard and low interoceptive awareness, which is just our ability to sort of sense into internal processes in the body, right? Like recognizing when you're hungry or recognizing sort of the beat of your heart and these types of things. And in virtual reality, both the virtual environment, so sort of the background and the environment that you're in, and the virtual body, so the sort of avatar that you're sort of embodied in, can be manipulated to emphasize certain qualities of an experience, which allows people to tune into the body and observe the body from a different perspective. And so therapies involving virtual embodiment in virtual reality have led to increases in body satisfaction, heightened interoceptive awareness, and improved body integrity for eating disorder patients. So using some of these same basic mechanisms, such as embodiment and some of the visual tactile integration, which is just by that, I mean combining sort of synchronous touch and visual mapping, which they do in VR for treatment of things like chronic pain. We may be able to help individuals reorient when they're experiencing uncomfortable emotions originating in the body. 
And so this is sort of a long-winded way of, of saying that a lot of what we've learned about the use of virtual reality and these other conditions can be applied to self-injury, although it hasn't yet been applied. And so it's all sort of speculative. Very interesting, for sure. Yeah, I, I remember you know, reading that in your paper. I'm like, how would this apply to self-injuries? That would be very innovative and I suppose another form of digital intervention. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned using VR for body orientation, improving body disregard and interoceptive experiences for individuals with eating disorders. And in the intro, you mentioned when I asked about your interest in self-injury and how you became interested in this research, you mentioned and disclosed your own history of disordered eating. Have you participated in any VR experiences for disordered eating? That's a good question. No, I have not participated in any VR experiences for my own therapy and treatment. I think I'm very curious about them. And I think sort of mechanistically, it makes a whole lot of sense. I also will say that body-oriented therapies and techniques have been extremely useful in my own recovery. So whether that be yoga or some type of mindful breathing or movement and sort of tuning into the body through like integrated family systems or some type of parts work, which is just like fancy ways of saying, paying attention to the body in a different way have been really useful. And I think some of my interest in VR sort of stems from that and from my personal experience of that being really effective. So you could see how it might be a good fit for maybe individuals who self-injure and particularly individuals who both engage in disordered eating or have an eating disorder and engage in non-suicidal self-injury. Yeah, totally. Thank you for sharing that. I want to make sure I acknowledge that. Thank you very much. What do you believe are next steps for digital interventions to address self-injury in addition to maybe virtual reality? Yeah, I think in terms of next steps, there's a lot of possibilities. We don't have too much work in this area for self-injury specifically, so we're sort of at the start, and I think there are a lot of different directions that we could go in. What I'm most excited by is the potential to get resources to folks who are early in the recovery process and who may be going online and just sort of exploring what's there and trying to connect with people, especially people who are traditionally underserved in treatment settings. No one should have to struggle alone. And unfortunately, our healthcare system isn't set up to help everyone. So I think there's a lot of promise in using digital interventions to reach these folks. And I would say that, you know, one of the things in terms of next steps that I don't think that we do a very good job in sort of in the academic world is thinking through how we're going to make these interventions sustainable and accessible to folks after the trial. So after we know it's effective, where is this going to live and how are people going to get access And so for me, that's been exploring partnering with nonprofit agencies and industry and people who can deploy these interventions and sustain them to ensure that they are broadly accessible. And I'm thinking about just my knowledge of app-based technology for mental health in general. I've understood that no matter what, the most effective apps, one, are constantly changing to meet the needs of the user and keeping them engaged, and two, for mental health specifically, requires still some sort of human touch and human interaction. Is that what you have found when you did your qualitative interviews and doing your research on digital interventions? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I should say in my interviews, people will comment on apps that they've used for mental health, for self-injury specifically, like addiction apps and other things that they've kind of used for a different purpose. And one of the leading complaints is just that after, you know, over time, there's no updates, it's not working anymore, they get a new phone and something breaks down. And there's no human in the loop to kind of take care of that. And there isn't a funding structure to make sure that it's being updated and maintained to the level that it needs to be to serve people. And so I would say, you know, in addition to that, the evidence really does suggest that some type of lightweight human touch improves engagement in digital interventions. So folks will use these interventions longer when there is someone in the loop there, whether that be a coach or a therapist or, you know, someone to help them facilitate achieving their goals, which is often what these different interventions work towards. But we have seen that with user-centered design, so with incorporating the experience of the folks that we're targeting in these interventions, so individuals with lived experience of self-injury or other mental health conditions, we do get fairly good engagement rates. And this is for interventions without a human in the loop, you know, once they're sort of released. And so I think that's really key in moving forward is making sure that we are centering the folks that we're intending to help in the entire process of designing, sort of evaluating, deploying these interventions. Finally, based on our conversation today about self-injury and digital interventions, what would you recommend to parents? To parents, I think what I would say is similar to what I've heard on a lot of the different episodes, and that is that you can't underestimate what a huge impact you can have by listening to your kids and understanding their needs and coming from a place of curiosity. And that's hard because, of course, fear comes in, but really trying to maintain curiosity and, and understanding what it is that your child needs One thing that consistently comes out of the qualitative work that I do when talking to kids is that they want to have conversations with their parents and with medical professionals. And sometimes that's hard because they're worried that they're going to be misunderstood. I would also say that there's loads of resources out there online for parents who may have children who self-injure, especially through the Cornell Research Program. I know there's like training and things there. And I would say in terms of digital interventions, I think keeping an open mind. So knowing that digital interventions could be another resource for your child in their efforts towards, you know, managing their self-injury. I think sometimes when you hear of online communities or, you know, children going online and and seeking information about self-injury, there's sort of a hesitancy or like being scared that maybe they're going to come into contact with something that might be unhelpful. But we know that there are lots of young people who are online and, you know, they say that they're connecting with people that are helping them and coming into contact with resources that are helpful. And so we have to, we have to also remember that there are those benefits. It's not just those harms. Based on our conversation today about self-injury and digital interventions, what would you recommend to other professionals, whether other researchers or clinicians? For clinicians and folks working in mental health, I think the biggest thing I'd want folks to come away from this podcast with is to be aware of the apps that are out there, or just generally sort of some of the apps and the functionalities of them, because they might be ways to augment existing treatment or things that could be recommended if for any reason a patient is unable to continue sort of weekly therapy. 
and also to understand what online communities or online activities patients are engaging with. So asking those questions and trying to understand what functions they're serving, because that's one part of like the environment that they're in, you know, in between therapy that I think is important to understand and integrate into those conversations. I guess the takeaway for researchers or people working in this space is that we need more evidence on the efficacy of digital interventions and also to understand what targets are most malleable in digital formats and, and sort of to know what direction we should be going and moving forward. And then sort of lastly, while I'm really fond of digital interventions and plan to work in this space, again, it's like one sort of resource in the mix of lots of other resources. And so I think being cautious and moving forward is important. Um, one thing that I've noticed in talking with people is that there are lots of privacy concerns around digital interventions that we haven't touched on, but I think are important to have in the back of your mind if you are a researcher working in this space, because it's not just an intervention delivering content to a user, the user is also providing that intervention with information. And so we need to make sure that we have long-term privacy plans to protect that information and make sure that, you know, it doesn't get into the hands of folks that it wasn't intended for. Those are some good recommendations. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? I think what I would say to folks with lived experience is there are digital interventions out there. We don't have a ton of evidence for self-injury specific interventions, but there is preliminary evidence. And so if you're interested in checking some, some apps out and seeing how they work for you, you know, using sources like the One Mind Cyber Guide could be a good next step. The other thing that I would say is that not all interventions are the same. And so just like when you're seeing a therapist or even when you're making friends, if you try one intervention in one app, perhaps, and it doesn't work for you, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of the apps are going to fall into that category. So it might be a little bit of giving things a try and really checking in with yourself and seeing whether or not they're meeting your needs. That's really good. This has been a really enjoyable interview for me, enjoyable conversation. I believe it'll be really informative and helpful for those listening. So Dr. Cruzan, thank you for participating in the podcast and all the research that you do. I look forward to seeing more of what you put out there and, and learning more from you. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure and thanks for, thanks for having this podcast. It's a great resource. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes in which we hear another story of lived experience as well as explore the psychology of self-injury scarring. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow IPSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.